Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 110, released on the 20th of March 2019. Today we are going to talk about uh, Spotify and Apple, about the future of solar power, about Google Docs as a chat app, about ethics in AI, M&A activity of unicorns, and much more. We also have a pre-recorded interview with uh, Carlos Movedas, the European Commissioner for Research Science and innovation. I am your host, Andre Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hi, Natalie. How is it going? Hi, Andre. It's going well. I'm really excited because today that this podcast is released is the first day of spring. So no more cold European winter. How is it the first day of spring again? Isn't it first of March? No. March 20th is the first official day of spring. Okay, I'm just used to looking at the calendar, really, and like calendar spring starts on the 1st of March. That's that's when it starts for me. No, there's an official start date, and that's today. Okay, perfect. I'm very happy about it. I'm, uh, I've had more than enough of the Dutch winter, and I'm really looking forward for uh, some more sun. So uh, how was the last week, anyway? What was the, what was the biggest deal this time? Last week, our biggest funding round went to Spain, specifically to the fintech company Pegantes from Barcelona. They've just raised 65 million euros for their e-commerce financing platform. And this is one of the biggest investments into a Spanish fintech company ever. Uh, speaking about money, uh, let's uh, get into the first uh, story of the past week I wanted to talk about. And this is arguably the biggest tech story from last week. And it is about the complaint uh, that Spotify filed against Apple. So the Swedish-born company asked the European Commission to investigate Apple's anti-competitive behavior in the music streaming space. And particularly, this behavior goes against uh, Spotify itself, as it claims. Here is what Spotify founder and CEO Daniel Ek wrote in a post uh, announcing uh, the, the suit. Uh, the quote begins, In recent years, Apple has introduced rules to the App Store that purposely limit choice and stifle innovation at the expense of the user experience, essentially acting as both a player and referee to deliberately disadvantage other app developers. After trying unsuccessfully to resolve the issues directly with Apple, we are now requesting uh, that the European Commission take action to ensure fair competition. The quote ends. Spotify even put together a website. It's called uh, Time to Play Fair. And on that website, they outlined all the slides that the company has seen from Apple. And after reading all this, to me, it kind of sounds that uh, Spotify is right here. And uh, the main point that Spotify is making across all these issues that uh, it describes is that Apple employs double standards regarding its own ecosystem. And that's, first of all, the App Store itself. And it employs it when it comes to the areas where it has products of its own. One of these areas is obviously music streaming. And Spotify says, among other things, that uh, Apple did not let it develop an app for its watch until 2018. Also, Spotify is still not available on the HomePod and so on. But the main concern uh, that uh, Apple wants to take a 30% cut from each subscription payment. Uh, this number goes down to 15% after the first year of subscription, but it's still a lot, especially since Spotify's direct competitor, Apple Music, does not have to pay a single cent. So Spotify also talked about the rules that Apple imposes on the app in the App Store. For example, you're not allowed as an app developer to tell the customer that it is possible to pay for the subscription outside of the app. There's just no way to do that. You will be rejected uh, from the App Store. As far as I understand, uh, for example, right now, apps like uh, Netflix and Kindle, who also refuse to pay the so-called Apple tax, they look kind of weird when you launch uh, these apps uh, uh, for the first time on iOS. They will just show you a screen uh, with login and password fields and no explanation whatsoever of what to do next, because this would kind of include going elsewhere and paying for a subscription or buying a book on, on Amazon's platform. So we just uh, won't, uh, won't tell you a thing. So that was the first step uh, done by Spotify. A few days later, still last week, Apple published a reply to Spotify's accusations. 
I have to say it's a really eloquent one. It's a great example of uh, a uh, PR uh, sort of piece uh, that uh, reads very well. But at the same time, I think that it fails to address some, if not most, of the issues that were described by Spotify. Apple's general line of defense is quite obvious here. So after all, it is Apple's platform. It has worked hard to make it what it is today, and it should be able to make money out of it. Apple also mentions that 84% of the apps in the App Store are free and or ad-supported, which basically means that Apple does not earn any money from them. But despite all this, I still think that Apple's rules are not great for the customers and developers alike. There is very little choice and all sorts of tight requirements that are not used very consistently across the board. So I will link to both uh, statements uh, in the show notes, but I would also encourage you to read a good paragraph-by-paragraph overview of Apple's reply that was written by Owen Williams, and I think he sums it up really, really, really well. Now, Natalie, what's your take on this story? What, uh, What side are you on? So I think there's a number of things to analyze here, but I would first encourage all of you to have a look at the site that Spotify developed to kind of raise some of these claims. It is very slick. It's very beautifully designed, like most of their products, lots of very creative imagery. And it's really trying to make this strong case that why Apple is not playing fair. But then there's this other side, which you have to also think about is that Apple, it's a public company that has their own interests. It has developed and operates its own app store. And it has jurisdiction and authority about how products and services are launched or available in that store. Maybe if you're a company that wants to be in the app store, you might not agree with some of the restrictions. Apple is very tight about what types of apps and products and services can be listed in their app store. So I think it's kind of, there. there's two, two incentives here. You both have public companies that, well, we have one case where one clearly wants something from the other, but I don't know if they necessarily have a legal claim to do that. So approaching the EU to address these claims, I think is the right strategy. I don't know if they have a strong case, but it's something definitely that going to the commission is the right step. I'm pretty sure they they do have a case here. Just if you look at the previous antitrust uh, regulations, antitrust decisions uh, made by the European Commission, I think it's not that far away from, uh, from what's already been uh, looked at by the commission. But I do think that uh, Spotify is right. And for example, if you look at Google, uh, Google Play Store also has these sort of uh, rules, these sort of requirements, but at the same time, there are ways to uh, get uh, people pay uh, outside of Google's payment ecosystem, that is, without uh, paying this uh, 30% cut. And also, I think that the whole 30% tax thing is not very consistent, as I already said, because, for example, Uber does not pay anything. Uh, from uh, bookings orders made uh, on the app. A lot of other things also. So Apple sort of says that, yeah, we don't uh, uh, charge for physical, for the sale of physical goods and uh, services. We charge for digital products. I don't think it's working that great. I mean, maybe it would be better if it just charged everything, but uh, on a much uh, lower, uh, with a much lower percentage, then it would be a bit more equalized, I would say. So what do you think about Spotify's claims that the app store is blocking access to their products and updates to their app? Do you agree with this claim? Because I think Apple makes a pretty strong case that that's actually not what's happening. Well, it's hard to say whether it uh, it does it or not because uh, if they say different things, uh, Apple and Spotify, that is, it's it's hard to understand uh, who's right. I mean, if it is true that Apple would just uh, reject uh, Spotify's uh, app submissions uh, uh, for the reasons listed on the website, that's that's not a great practice. Let's let's say. But it's but it also wouldn't be the first time that someone is unhappy uh, with uh, how uh, Apple uh, uh, treats uh, new app submissions in the App Store. So it's just a bigger case where uh, much uh, where the stakes are much higher. But it's definitely not the first time that developers are upset with how Apple handles its ecosystem and its uh, platform. Yeah, I think that the claims about the Apple Watch are 
some of the the most interesting. And, and also that Apple points out that the Spotify watch app is the number one app in watch music. And despite Spotify's claims that they were prevented from accessing that ecosystem for a long time. Yeah, no, but this, but these two claims, they are not uh, mutually excluding, right? Because uh, what Spotify says is that they were not allowed onto the platform from 2016 to 2018, uh, which Apple kind of says is not true, uh, which makes it one of the very few claims uh, that Spotify makes and then uh, that Apple just uh, tries, tries to refute uh, completely. And so I'm really interested whether it did or did not uh, happen. So did they actually refuse uh, their request to make an app or not? And and both of these companies have benefited from one another. And I think approaching the commission is the, the right approach here. I don't know how many other companies that Spotify will really recruit to their cause. Um, I don't know if this is kind of a isolated incident or if this is something that's happening more broadly. So um, I'm like you. I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out. Yeah, it might be it might be the start of something much bigger here. So let's see. Now, what did you want to talk about? Yeah, so I've been really touched by the climate walkout that happened last week by a number of young people who left school to demand climate action. So I wanted to look a little bit more into the topic of renewable energies. The title of the segment that I'm presenting this week is called Here Comes the Sun, because there's been a number of really exciting recent investments in solar energy for European startups. So I thought I would give a rundown of them. According to research released by an industry body, Solar Power Europe, solar energy technologies are the fastest growing power generation source globally. Today, they make up about 61% of all renewable energy that's produced worldwide. Europe has always been a world leader in solar development and in a number of countries in capacity terms as well. Although that upward trend has dipped somewhat in recent years as China has really taken on the mantle of renewables and energy credits and tax support for renewable energy has decreased in Europe somewhat recently. Because Europe was such an early mover in this market and really pioneered a lot of the technologies that are being used today, we have quite a lot of industrial capacity and lots and lots of talent in this space. As just an example of some of the great European talent we have in this space is seen in Ben Hill, who's Tesla's former lead for Europe and the Middle East. Beyond having a broad background and expertise in solar and renewable energy, much of the early research on solar cells was pioneered by his father at a research institute in the United Kingdom. So there's a real legacy there. Last month, he spun out a new solar energy company, B3 New Energy in London. He's also on staff at Solo Energy, which is a solar and renewable energy company that's based partly in Ireland and in Scotland. This company is getting a lot of buzz for their blockchain-powered peer-to-peer energy exchange. Does it have to be on blockchain? Okay, but no, there's lots of other exciting things happening in this space that are off the blockchain. And all across Europe, we're seeing really exciting things. So earlier this week, solar energy provider Sundix, which is headquartered in London, but operates all across Europe, received an investment of 250 million euros in financing to further its growth. Then we learned that solar energy specialists Oxford PV have completed a 31 million pound Series D funding round, which was led by Goldwind. Goldwind is one of China's biggest renewable energy companies. And Oxford PV, of course, is a spin out of, as you might have guessed, the University of Oxford in England. And so far, they've raised a total of 76 million pounds of funding over the last five years. And they make solar cells that are amongst the most advanced in the industry. And I think this investment is a pretty big deal, especially because Goldwind, um, as their name suggests, is a big pioneer in wind technologies. Actually, they're one of the world's largest suppliers of renewable energy. So it's really incredible that they're working with this European leader as they move into the solar space. So I think this might be um, huge things to come on the horizon here. And China is not the only international investor taking note of European solar energy companies. Last week, Exiger from Sweden received an investment of 10 million US dollars from SoftBank to accelerate commercialization across multiple markets. 
Exeter is doing some really interesting things. And if you don't know about this company, you really should make a point to Google them. Their solar cells can be used to power consumer products using any sort of light source. So eventually, like those days of trying to find a phone charger will be over because your phone will just be able to charge itself based on ambient light. Well, that's what Exeter claims. And so if this is true, they really have the potential to change people's lives. And these cells they can put on just about any sort of consumer product. It's also significant because in the announcement of this deal, the company also announced a new collaboration with SB Energy Corp, which is a Japanese subsidiary of SoftBank. This continues somewhat the Japanese connection to the Nordics that we discussed earlier this month on the podcast. Also, Last week, we learned the announcement of a new funding round of 20 million euros for Otovo, which is a Scandinavian solar energy startup that's based partly in Sweden and partly in Norway, and also the announcement they will merge with the French solar energy company in Sun We Trust. So this pairing positions this new firm to grow in becoming potentially what will be Europe's largest solar retailer and installer. But not to be outdone, here in the Netherlands, another solar installer, SolarMonkey, has raised 1 million euros in their efforts to scale their company to new markets. And based on consumer feedback, the first market that they're going to be entering will be Belgium. If all of these announcements are not exhausting enough, and it's not just investors that are plowing money into solar energy startups this week, it's also individuals. Trine, which is a Swedish investment firm, they've just facilitated a crowdfunding campaign for Bbox, which is a UK startup that develops pay-as-you-go solar energy systems that are used across Africa. They're built into different shipping containers, and they can be placed just about anywhere. Earlier this month, they closed their most recent funding campaign, which raised 6 million euros from a number of Swedish and European crowdfunders. Most of those were really small donations of less than 100 euros. So looking back in the past seven days or so, we have over 300 million euros invested in solar energy startups in Europe. So I'd say the future for this field looks bright. Wow, this is a lot of money, I have to say. And I can feel that you are missing the sun uh, very much. (laughs) You're talking about spring first, now you're talking about the solar power. (laughs) Yeah, I I really am am wishing um, it was a little more bright out here. But um, I think it's really exciting to see some of the developments in this field. And it seems that there are a number of synergies that really allow tons of potential here. So I think it's very exciting. Yeah, if, if, if I look at the consumer side of it, I'm really interested in all those uh, uh, cells that can uh, charge your phones or any other gadgets, because for, for such a long time, the one of the bigger problems of the consumer tech in general was the battery life. And you always, as a producer, as a manufacturer of uh, gadgets, you always had to take into account uh, like how big your battery is going to be and uh, how much battery life you want to include in your product. So if we have a way of uh, charging uh, a phone or whatever uh, there is uh, uh, from just the ambient light that can change how all the gadgets around us actually look. Yeah, and and Exeter is really kind of working on this and their solar cells can be placed on just about anything in any color and almost any material. It's really transformative and I'd love to learn more about what they're doing because it seems like this is one thing that you'll be able to hold in your hands sooner rather than later and it'll have a huge impact. Man, that's cool. If I if I see them at a at a conference anytime soon, I definitely want to I want to try it. Now, we can move on for the pre-recorded interview of the day. It was uh, conducted by our founding editor, Robin Wouters, and uh, the interviewee this time is uh, Carlos Movedas, uh, the European Commissioner for Research, Science and Innovation. Let's check this one out. We will be back in a few minutes. Hey, this is Robin Wouters for Tech.eu. I'm sitting here in Brussels for a change. I'm in the Berlin building. I'm sitting now with Commissioner uh, Moedas, who's responsible for science uh, research and innovation, which is quite a lot. Uh, so I'm going to let you sort of introduce yourself and you know, talk about your, uh, your day-to-day work. Thank you very much. Great pleasure to, uh, to be here with you and talk a little bit about my passion, which is uh, science and innovation, and how can we in the public sector help uh, Europe to, to get more companies that uh, transform knowledge into products 
and uh, that we have uh, bigger companies, not just because they are Europeans, but because they are the best. And so that's my day-to-day -day work is to meet entrepreneurs, to talk to them, to see what they need, and then try to transform European policy accordingly to the needs of those startups and entrepreneurs and create uh, more wealth and more companies. And at the same time, looking to the fundamental research, which is a very different field where we are the best of the best in the world and trying also to help the researchers in Europe and uh, the real scientific fundamental science to make things that will change the world. Uh, we don't know when, but they'll change the world for sure, because that's what fundamental science does. So on the fundamental science part, uh, what makes you say that we're the best of the best? How can you sort of justify that statement? Look, I, I mean, there's very the, the different uh, uh, numbers that prove my uh, my statement. But, you know, I mean, we have, if you look at really pure fundamental science, and if you look at physics, at chemistry, you look at the Nobel Prizes and you see that the great people of the European scientists that are at the base of that. And if you look then at uh, what we call the citations, which is one of the, the benchmarks for fundamental science, you see that on the top 10% of the citations in the world, so the number of articles that are the most cited, that Europe is ahead of the United States and China. And what's very interesting to see is that in the last 10 years, 15 years, and I can show you the numbers later, you see that the US in terms of those top 10 citations went down, China went up, and Europe was able to maintain its position in the last 10 to 15 years. And that is extremely interesting because you see that Europe is around 30 to 33 percent of these citations are European. And the US really went down uh, from their position in the past to below what Europe is today. And China went up. So I think that uh, we have to keep the good things uh, and the good work. Uh, and uh, fundamental science is one of those things that we can keep. Great. Um, would you say the same is true when it comes to uh, disruptive technology businesses uh, and scale-ups? Mm -hmm. Do you think we're already in a position that we can say we can compete with the rest of them uh, on a global level? That's a different matter. And unfortunately, I think that we are the best in the fundamental science area, but then we are not as good in transforming those fundamental science issues and that knowledge into products. Uh, especially, I think that we were very good on the first wave of innovation when uh, we invented the internet with Tim Berners-Lee, when we had great companies like Nokia or Siemens, but then we lost track and we lost the second wave of innovation with the digital and the apps uh, and the Ubers and the Facebooks, and, and that's where we lost it. So the question for the future is that what will be the next wave? You know, like Steve Case in his book looks at these waves of innovation. And the question is, so the future, is it going to be more like the first wave, which was the infrastructure, or will it be more the second wave, which was the digital on top of the physical? And probably it will be something different. Uh, I think we'll be definitely more related to fundamental science, to the quantum technologies or the blockchains and others. And that is an advantage for Europe because Europe is quite good at that fundamental science. So I have a, really a big hopes for Europe on that because uh, the future will not be like the past. So when people ask me, so I are going to do the next Google or the next Facebook, I say, you know, but the next Google and Facebook will not be Google or Facebook. It will be something that we cannot even imagine because we didn't imagine Google or Facebook uh, or Uber. So we don't know what the future will be. And probably... I I would bet, but I don't know if I'm wrong, that that future will be more about having the next quantum computer, about having a way that people can build their own companies in the internet with their free APIs that everybody can build on the top of a lot of things that today exist, that today are proprietary. And so those things will really open up to a very different world. Uh, and I hope that Europe positions itself well on that. Well, the next obvious question is how do we position uh, Europe for that within the context of uh, the European reality, mm -hmm. um, sometimes a very fragmented, complex uh, policymaking process. Um, you've been in your role a, a number of years already. So do you feel like you've accomplished what you've wanted to accomplish so far? And what more can we do to sort of, mm -hmm. as you said, position Europe for the next wave of innovation? So there, there, was, a, there was a couple of things that I really wanted to accomplish. One was uh, this idea of changing the way we fund innovation, uh, and that was the whole idea of this European Innovation Council 
that was an instrument that we needed. We needed for several reasons. We had a very scattered number of instruments with different names and people didn't know where to go when they come to the commission in terms of innovation. So we wanted to have a one-stop shop and call that one-stop shop the European Innovation Council. And that was a huge work. I mean, it was difficult to convince the countries. It was also difficult to convince the organization itself. So we had to fight for that. And uh, basically today, I think that we have people on board. I mean, you saw President Macron in his letter to the Europeans. He talks on uh, his uh, third paragraph about uh, the European Innovation Council. So that was a huge achievement that we can have something that is different. And what is being different? Being different is not telling people what to do, uh, but actually asking people what they want to do. So normally the funding of the European Union was based on telling people where to go or develop a technology in a certain field. And the European Innovation Council is the contrary of that, is about listening to the innovator and then just give money to the innovator to do what he really feels is the right way to do it. And so that cannot be done by just uh, looking at uh, files and applications. You have to interview people. So we have put like a, a big difference from the past is that we will interview all the innovators. And then you can have a feel for that person. Is it someone that will make really a change in the world? Is that someone that has a big project but probably was not able to write the application right? So we are changing small and big things. And the European Innovation Council is really a fantastic achievement that I hope that in the future will will just follow its course. And then the missions and uh, looking at um, more a uh, better way to communicate with people. I think that science today is very far away from people. People don't know what science is about and they don't know what we do. And so the the idea of these moonshots. Uh, of having things that people understand, that was, for me, very important. And we call that the mission-driven science. And so we are discussing with the ministers of science of Europe to have four, five, uh, you call it 10 missions that European people understand what the fundamental scientists are doing. Where are we going? Do you want to find the cure for a disease? Do you want to have the new electrical plane? So all that is important for our future. Great. Um, so going back, you touched on it briefly, but uh, I want to go in a little bit more detail about the financing mechanisms. Uh, what do we have in place today to get the startups of tomorrow funded? And should it be public? Should it be public-private? And how do you plan to unlock you know, the vast amount of capital that's already available in Europe uh, and try to get that to go to innovative, innovative startups? So I think that um, after the crisis, there was a, a huge increase uh, in public venture capital. And uh, as you know, venture capital in Europe uh, and the amount of capital raised in Europe is very small compared to the United States and other parts of the world. So we had this objective of one, increasing venture capital, uh, the amount of capital raised, but increasing in, on the private sector because we have already public sector venture capital, but we have a very unbalanced let's say, portfolio in between public and private. And so we started with this idea of a fund of funds for Europe, where we have, uh, we will put 400 million euro public. But the idea is that for each euro that as a uh, public puts, uh, there will be basically three euros of private money. And so we have chosen uh, general partners that are private companies that will, with that one euro, they'll go around and raise three euros. And at the end, you have four euros. So when um, uh, you go to uh, that amount, you can go up to 2 billion euros because we just put 400 million and that's a minimum. And so with that, you can have an effect that will leverage around 10 billion. So that will be a huge impact on the European landscape of venture capital. And we are very proud of that. So now we, we have launched the process. We have chosen the general partners and the, now they are doing their job. If they are not able to raise the money privately, uh, then uh, we will not give them the money because the point here was to increase the private side. And this balance in between public and private is extremely important. Uh, I think that uh, innovation in science are a very good example where public and private are uh, hands um, to hands. I mean, you, you cannot have investment in innovation or in science, just the private or just the public. But the right mix for me is basically two thirds, one third. 
And, and that two-thirds, one-third is important in every field of science and innovation. Thanks for the detailed explanation. Um, going back to the, the program, uh, the Horizon 2020, I remember when it launched, uh, 2020 seemed like such a long time away. Uh, we're now one year off. So what's the next iteration of that program and how is it going to, so how is it different from Horizon 2020? So, so Horizon 2020 is getting to the end. As you know, Horizon 2020 was a very big program, almost 80 billion euros. Uh, we are getting to the last part of it. And now we are working already in the next program, which is called Horizon Europe. It's not a, a huge transformation, but there is a couple of differences. One is the European Innovation Council that was not part of Horizon 2020. And the second is the missions, the mission-driven science. And those things are the big changes. All the rest uh, is kind of like the same because you have to need stability. You need stability for the scientists they have to know what they have. And so we are investing in fundamental science even more than before. Just to give you an idea, our main instrument is the European Research Council that was before 13 billion euros. And now it will be almost 18 billion euros for Horizon Europe if our proposal is successful in the parliament and the council. Uh, but so uh, mostly I think the two novelties of Horizon Europe are the missions and the European Innovation Council. And the rest is pretty much a continuation of what we had, which was already absolutely fantastic for the European citizens and especially for the European scientists. Great. Um, you've already talked about the European Innovation Council, uh, which was for a large degree modeled after the innovation, uh, the research, research council, council, of course. Why is it so essential for you? Why have you launched this this proposal and what, what's going to be the next iteration of that? Because I know it's we're still in the pilot phase for the most part. So how is it going to change things? I think that will change. It will be small changes that will change radically the way it works. So um, now we are on this pilot. Uh, we had uh, 2.7 billion euros for a pilot in between 2018 to 2020. So we will, we will test the idea. And by the way, we're just going to announce that we'll put another 300 million on top of those uh, 2.7 billion that we had. So that's good news for the innovators. But the idea is that we change the small and the big things. We change the big thing that we will have these calls uh, without topics. So you will not have a call that is just about um, creating the next fabric or the next way of uh, uh, doing uh, a battery, but a call that is open, like just come with ideas. So this radically change. I mean, that's really radical change. And then there'll be all the other parts, which is to give the opportunity for people to go not just to grants, but also to equity. So before we would give you, imagine for you had your small startup, you had a fantastic idea, and we would give you a grant for 2 million euros. But why just 2 million euros if you could have the grant and then I could eventually invest also in your business by another 2 million. And so that 2 million extra will give an ability for that person or that company to scale up quicker and we'll give another opportunity is that the European money, by being invested on uh, that company, you can actually get returns from it and invest in other companies. Uh, and so that idea of the mix in between the grants and the equity, it's something that will be uh, very useful for the future. Very interesting. Um, so when we do research at TechEU, one of the things we notice uh, when you look at the numbers, but also anecdotal, is that sort of move, a movement in two speeds in, in a way. You have Western Europe and the mature hubs, London, Paris, Berlin. And then you have sort of the CE region, the Baltics, where a lot of things are happening, but seemingly at a very, very different speed and coming from, from a very long, long way behind. So they're still very much in development while the other ones are maturing. How do you make sure that all of those regions uh, benefit from the same programs and the same initiatives that you launch? Yeah, that's a very important discussion. And it's an important discussion because our program is based on excellence and excellence is to be the best. But at the same time, you have to help people that are not as good to go up the ladder of excellence. Um, and so one of the parts of the program that uh, we have designed already in Horizon 2020, but now we have doubled the budget, is about helping those countries to get up on the ladder of excellence. What do I mean by that? 
For instance, having money to have an organization like Fraunhofer to have a subsidiary in a country that is from the EU 13, or having a professor that actually passes, goes for a year or two years to a university in one of those countries. Um, then having projects that you can team up with, uh, with that country and having, uh, and build something there that will be for the future in terms of projects. Uh, you know, we have probably the best example of that. Uh, is our ELI, which is basically a European, a huge project uh, for uh, um, in particle physics, where you will have accelerators and you have uh, lasers that will get us the ability to see very small things. And so we have done that in between three countries of the EU-13 with the help of other countries from uh, the EU-15. And so I think that we have really have that duty, which is how to help these countries to go up the ladder of excellence. And we have doubled that budget. Now we're going to have around 3 billion euros for that. Fantastic. A uh, slightly more fun question to conclude. Uh, what's the most impressive thing you've seen on the technology or science side in the last, let's say, 12 months? What, have, what has really brought out the, the wow factor of something you've seen? Uh, no, a lot of things. I mean, I, I do travel a lot and I see a lot of people and I see amazing young people, amazing universities. Probably I would... Uh, uh, get you a couple of examples. I mean, in, in Delft, uh, in their quantum lab, I, I saw kind of the, the, the work on the next or the first really 49 qubits uh, quantum computer, which is pretty impressive. Um, I saw the first experience of the entanglement of Einstein, where you put two particles that you put apart from a distance of one kilometer and the particles move exactly in the same way without any link in between the particles. And that is uh, groundbreaking because in cybersecurity, for instance, if you can have particles that move in in the same direction without any link in between them. There's no hacker that can go onto the back doors because there's no back doors. There's just this amazing uh, way or this amazing theory of Einstein that 100 years later works. Uh, and so I found that really beautiful. Um, and then I, I've seen uh, um, uh, amazing young people that are transforming the world uh, in very different ways, like in the Netherlands, Boy and Slot, which is this young boy that basically is cleaning up the oceans with a new technology. Um, uh, I've seen uh, in Portugal a guy that developed a very looks like very obvious, the so important thing for uh, people that are colorblind, uh, that he has developed basically a code that people can uh, basically understand what color is there by a, a symbol. Uh, and so he's distributing there in schools for people that are colorblind. And that, I mean, is something that is essential, but nobody thought about before. So you see, it goes from quantum physics to very simple things that impress me. Uh, but we have an amazing, um, really an amazing generation there in Europe that is changing the world. Uh, and, and that is very unique. And I travel uh, all over the world. And I think that Europeans should be proud of that. Fantastic. Well, I asked for one example. And I got many. Uh, that's very cool. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Moedas. And uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you very much. I'm very uh, happy to be on TechEU. <laughs> Hello, hello, and uh, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu. We have just talked about uh, Spotify complaining against Apple, talked about the sun that's uh, coming up in Europe, and listened to an interview with Carlos Moedas. Now it is time for an uh, outline of the events that we can be looking forward to. Natalie, what uh, should we expect to happen in the near future? Yeah, so as this podcast goes live, I'll be en route to join Robin at the Startup Europe Summit in Cluj, Romania. And there's really a lot that I'm looking forward to at this event, but most especially to join a panel to talk about the development of startup ecosystems, which I've really based my research work on, and I'm excited to join it there. I'm also looking forward to tons of excellent programming that Romanian presidency of the commission has put together for us and Startup Europe. So look forward to lots of interviews coming up on the upcoming podcast with some of the great speakers and attendees that they've assembled there. 
Also this week in Paris is Startup Safari Paris, which is a great community event that serves somewhat as an open door to that city startup scene. And I'm a big supporter of Startup Safari and what they're doing um, all across Europe and beyond. And they do great work in bringing the community together and really opening up this idea of startups to young people and people just in the community. And the organizers of Startup Safari Paris are super incredible people and it has the makings of a really incredible couple of days. So if you're in Paris, you should really check that out and support the activities of your local ecosystem. As far as other events to put on your calendar, if you're not headed to Startup Olay in Salamanca at the end of the month, I'd like you to have a look at Future Scope, which is held March 28th at the Convention Center in Dublin, Ireland. It's the one place that gets most of Ireland's tech community in one room and is put on by Dublin Bick, who does incredible work for the Irish tech community. And the program of this looks excellent. And knowing kind of from their previous events that I've been involved with, they've really put their finger on the pulse of what's next in innovation. And there's something for everyone here, especially considering you have one day with over 100 speakers. So there'll always be something for you to listen to. So if you're looking for more things to do this month, check out the event section on our website. And if you have a suggestion for us to add, let us know at the link in the show notes, and we'll be sure to mention it on the podcast. Natalie, I have just uh, checked the weather for Cluj. For the rest of the week, it's going to be sunny. Wonderful. <laughs> That's excellent. Can't <laughs> wait. Now, let's move on to the uh, books and stories and podcasts and whatnot recommendations from us. Uh, I wanted to start today, and uh, my today's recommendation comes in two parts. And uh, these two parts are totally not connected to each other. I just really wanted to recommend both of them. I couldn't choose. So the first one is a bit more serious and contains more numbers and figures. And it's a piece on Crunchbase called uh, To Get Big Faster, Younger Unicorns Start Buying Startups Sooner. So that's pretty much uh, in the name. So it shows an interesting global trend uh, that unicorn startups today, they, they start acquiring other startups much earlier in their life cycle than they used to. In 2004, uh, the researcher says uh, the average age of a unicorn company before it makes its first acquisition was almost nine years. In 2012, it was already about four years. And this number is declining further towards uh, last year. But the sample size also goes down. So I didn't want to quote it just because it might be uh, skewed because of the sample. Now, I think it's an interesting observation overall, and I do think that this is actually what's happening. So check it out just to understand how companies deal with the market's expectations of explosive uh, growth these days. Now, the second part of the recommendation is something much more general, and it's the story that uh, uh, the headline of which reads as the hottest chat app for teens is Google Docs. Natalie, when you were in school, did you write and pass paper notes around? I did a little bit, but I was mostly that kind of boring student that sat in the front row trying to furiously scribble down everything the teacher was saying. So not really <laughs> <laughs> maybe the, the market demographic for this. Oh, I remember those those paper notes very, very well. I wasn't that much involved, but I saw them flying or being secretly passed around uh, all the time in class. And it turns out that the kids today, at least in the US, mostly chat on Google Docs, making it just look like they're working on their assignments. It doesn't really surprise me that much, uh, uh, but it, it's quite funny how kids bored at school can make anything into a tool that helps them, I don't know, talk shit about the teachers or flirt with each other or just any way uh, that allows them not to do what they're supposed to be doing in school. So check out this story. It's really, it's really, really hilarious. To me, it's reminiscent a little bit of Google Wave. Do you remember Google Wave, Natalie? No, I don't. So it's one of the it's one of the dead uh, products uh, of Google that uh, was uh, out in uh, 2008 I think or something around that time and it was sort of an upgraded version of uh, Google Docs that allowed much more uh, collaboration much more uh, commenting and so on so what these kids are doing is really what Google Wave was made for but it was there more than 10 years ago, and I think it died within a couple of years after it was introduced, as did many of Google's products. You know, it, it reminds me of how we used to pass notes in, in school. Was um, ever in, in America, everyone had to buy in high school this um, Texas Instruments graphing calculator. So it's this very large calculator, and just about every single person that went to school in the U.S. had to buy one. It's about a hundred bucks. Um, but what you could do with these calculators is you could program a number of different 
types of many apps or different types of things into into the hardware of these. And what we do is we would write different notes or things and then you would trade the calculators around and that's that's another way of being able to communicate in class while also pretending like you're working so um, i have very fond memories of that um less so the paper notes um but that does bring up a very uh sweet memory for me (laughs) i have never known it it existed so basically but yeah this google docs thing is just a direct uh, direct continuation of (laughs) of texas instrument calculator messaging yeah Definitely. Wow, this is great. I really, really like it. Thanks for sharing this. This is amazing. <laughs> this is the best. Now, what did you want to recommend, Natalie? Yeah, so there is a lot of different things I wanted to recommend this week, but I decided to just leave it to one, which is an article on Politico called Europe's Silver Bullet in Global AI Battle is Ethics. This topic is something I covered on the podcast a while back. And if you don't remember, last year, the European Commission convened an expert and stakeholder group to develop a set of guidelines for ethical AI. And the final report of their recommendations will be released next month. And later on, they'll have some different policy suggestions. They're all non-binding, but it's very interesting. At the time, I said I was really excited to see that Europe was being a leader in the space. This article brings together a number of leading voices from around the European tech and policy landscape to really kind of have their say on the AI strategy to kind of understand their ideas and to question, does this whole thing make sense? And the article does a great job of showing just how varied the landscape is here from the positive saying that the ethics will be a new comparative advantage for Europe to this biting final line by Ulrike Franke, who is the policy fellow, the European Council on Foreign Relations. And I'll quote, it's absurd to believe that you can become a world leader in ethical AI before becoming a world leader in AI first, end quote. So I'm just going to leave that there. I don't want to make any judgments, but I want to recommend it to you this week to make up your own mind. Something also very interesting is this article comes from Politico's new coverage. They have a special newsletter. It seems like there's a lot of these special newsletters coming out, um, but this one is dedicated specifically to technology. So if you like that article, um, it's something you can sign up for um, and register for. Um, but we are in the age of newsletters. It's a topic for another time, but here's another one. Oh, yeah. For sure. Well, I, I really like I really like this uh, this line that you quoted. It's uh, it, it's really hitting home with me because when I was listening to all the AI ethics uh, debate uh, on the European Union level, I, I thought uh, I thought a very similar a very similar thing. But do you actually think that uh, uh, Europe can be this leader? You know, I think there's many different ways that you can lead. And leading in a kind of qualitative sense or leading on in an ethical forefront doesn't necessarily meeting, lead on different sorts of forefronts. I think what's challenging is if we look at Europe as a homogenous entity, which it really isn't. But the EU has the opportunity, unlike other states, that it can kind of project some of these qualitative differences and, and this ethical perspective, which I think is a really valuable one. But in terms of being a, a world leader in AI, there are so many different ways you could attribute that. So I don't know if that's necessarily meaningful. But it's just an interesting thing to think about. I'm a big fan of Ulrike Frank's work. She does a lot of stuff more on competition policy and more at looking at this geopolitical space. So it's very interesting that she's responding to this here. But also, um, it's great to have this outsider's perspective. I think she's kind of put her finger on on some things. But make up your own mind and, and have a look at that if it sounds interesting. And speaking of AI, I know we're over time, but just like one quick minute. Did you read this piece? I think it was on the verge uh, that more than third of uh, startups that say that they are AI startups are not uh, ha- have no AI uh, whatsoever in their in their business model or in in their products. So I'll just take a moment because I have very strong feelings about that, and that association comes from third-party companies such as Crunchbase, Deal Room, these data aggregators attributing 
different sorts of classifications to the startups. And one of the main conclusions out of that report found that companies that called themselves AI startups, not necessarily themselves calling themselves AI startups, but other third-party companies attributing AI to these companies, maybe rightly or wrongly, there is a lot of challenges in, in classifying these correctly. They found that these AI named startups were actually raising more investment money. And it kind of put together this suggestion that these companies were misrepresenting themselves and really profiting off of that with bigger investments. But I really disagree with that conclusion. Um, and I think in some ways it, it is weak research because I believe the investors know what they're investing in. And we can't really make these kind of very general conclusions based on a third party attribution of, of what these companies are or are not doing. So do you think that it's purely an attribution problem and there is just no uh, such an issue that the startups would call themselves AI while not having AI in their product? Well, there's two different parts of this. So first, there is the attribution problem. So we don't necessarily know what the magnitude of difference is. So we don't know if it's 40% or 20% or whatever. I don't know if that's necessarily meaningful. But everyone jumped on this 40% number. And it was like, oh, all these companies are misattributing themselves, when actually the case is a lot more nuanced. Secondly, um, with that is I think it brought up a lot of uh, interesting conversations of what is AI. And there really is a lot of different definitions for it. And a lot of especially early stage companies might not be using what one definition of AI we might consider as AI. They're developing a lot of foundations that will eventually be then used for artificial intelligence or machine learning or these different sorts of things. So maybe they're in some ways could not be defined as AI companies. Now, if you take a hard definition, but maybe as they grow and scale, they'll have that potential. So it's very difficult to attribute a kind of close definition to these companies. So I think it kind of is a great example of this very diverse and kind of very challenging landscape. Our definitions for these things are changing all the time. How we measure and identify these companies is also very shifting. There is no hard definition of what is AI or not. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. Everyone loves to see these flashy headlines and think that it can be meaningful. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, what is actually underneath there is much more difficult to piece through. And that's why having these conversations about what is ethical or what is AI are so important. And we should continue to do that. Okay. I'm very happy that I asked you that. Thanks a lot for, uh, uh, for your strong opinions. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to to listen to you. And, and I do agree. I, I do agree in this case. I think this is this is what makes sense. Anyway, now we are definitely out of time, so we have to wrap it up. That's it for today's uh, podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it today. Do not miss our new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify or SoundCloud. Just look for tech.eu podcast and you will find us. If you are listening on iTunes, leave us a review today. This will help others find the podcast and will mean a lot for us. Tell a friend or colleague about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you so much, Andre, for having me. And for all of you listeners, if any of you is in Cluj for Startup Europe, please say hi. Let me know what you think of the podcast, good or bad. I'd love to hear from you. Enjoy the sun and uh, talk to you all next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.